You can open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 3 through 8 and focusing on that text this morning. I will never forget one of the most impactful lessons I have ever received on the topic of prayer. It was life-changing, eternity-shifting, and mind-blowing. It's a pretty good setup, right? But if you'd been sitting with me, seeing what I was seeing and experiencing what I was experiencing, you probably would have thought nothing of it. Kelly and I and uh, Patrick Schneider had gone up to Portland to shadow the elder team at Hinson Baptist Church for the weekend. And we were in the early stages of changing the structure and leadership and polity of Mission Fellowship. And we were looking to this established and founded church to understand what it looked like to be elder-led and congregationally responsible. Now, on this particular evening, we were sitting as observers around their elder meeting. It was nothing special, very similar to how some of you have come and observed our elder meetings, and you're invited and welcome to do so. When they came to the time of prayer, they, like we do now, opened their member directories and began one by one praying for the members of their church. Now, for some, this is change enough to be life-altering, praying for those with whom you are in covenant rather than just for yourself or your family. But for others, you might say, well, that's not out of the ordinary, praying for the people in your church. But then I began to listen to how they prayed. Their prayers for the members started with gratitude and thanksgiving every time. They thanked God for the member and for the fruit and the evidence of the gospel at work in the life of that member. And it was evident that their thanks was genuine because, in all honesty, it wasn't about even the member themselves, but rather that their life gave great glory to God and testimony to his reality and truth, and it gave strength to the faith of the one that was praying to see the gospel moving in that person's life. <clears throat> and then they would complete the prayer by petitioning God by his spirit that he would continue the work of the gospel in the person's life. And because they knew the person, they would ask that the gospel and its power would affect a particular part of their life that needed sanctification or a particular relationship. And then they would agree in the name of Jesus and say amen. And then the next elder would pray for the next member. Now you might say, Hans, I'm a little worried that you're a pastor and an elder if that was earth-shattering for you. And you might be right. But I wasn't shocked by praying for the members. I wasn't shocked that it was Thanksgiving or petition. I was blown away by the centrality of the gospel in the midst of their prayer. It became more clear than ever that the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death, resurrection, and enthronement over his kingdom and people, is what produces fruit in the church. The gospel is the key, the power, the nutrition, if you will, of all the fruit that comes in the life of the Christian and therefore the local church. I was also so encouraged that thanks was given to God for the present growth and fruit of that person because of the gospel, because we are all at different stages of growth in our Christian walk. What brought God glory was not the level of growth, but that growth was happening as a result of the gospel, that every member was moving forward in their faith. And then rather than praying for a certain outcome, trying to manipulate God as pagan prayers do, 
the universal salve of the gospel was applied to whatever wound was in front of them as elders and then left in the trustworthy hands of God's providence. And I thought to myself, what amazing power the gospel has. Because no matter where you are in time or space or geography or culture, this perfect medicine, this same perfect medicine can be applied and fruit will result in the life of the truly converted. Friends, we must ask ourselves, is this how we pray? Is this how you pray? Prayer centered on, empowered by, encouraged in, and challenged by the gospel. Prayer centered on the gospel. Friends, as a pastor who deeply desires fruit in the midst of this body that I serve and am part of, when I saw this, it was like I had just been given the vault combination to the most desired treasure in the entire world. And it forever changed the way I pray and the way we pray as elders, and it changed the culture of this local church. For it is the message and active application of the gospel in the midst of the church that powerfully sanctifies, changes, and builds up the members that are part of it. It is the message and active application of the gospel that gives the local church the power to crucify the fleshly nature within us that wants to destroy the church and at the same time replaces it with new life in the spirit. And when this power of the gospel is active by the preaching and living out of the word of truth, a fruit of faith and of love and of hope begins to permeate every part of its culture and every relationship in the body. And this does not mean that the body becomes perfect or even, quite honestly, beautiful, but it becomes attractive to people. It becomes evidence for those who are being drawn by the gospel that this is a place, like other local churches, where they too will grow in the family of God. Unfortunately, as people immersed in the world around us, we often mistake the power of the gospel for the power of something else, perhaps a relationship, an experience, or a spiritual product or program that gives us a momentary spiritual high. And we quickly cast aside the basic gospel as if it weren't the power, thinking that something else is needed to strengthen and build us in our faith. And so the Christian church at large becomes a nomadic group, chasing after the spiritual high like a child, confusing the power of a regular, healthy, nutritious meal with the sugar high that comes from a candy treat. And we move, trying to find that candy treat that will give us the momentary high. Now, as we will see, this was the state of the church at Colossae at the writing of this letter. The truth of the gospel had been presented to them clearly and powerfully. It had taken root in the members of the body and produced the evidence that Christ was among them and that they were in Christ. But as we will see as the letter continues, ideas and philosophies had crept in that were undermining the gospel. And so what we will see in our text today at the beginning of the letter is Paul reminding them by way of a prayer of thanksgiving that it was the gospel that had been and will be their power. The gospel alone had been their source of growth and they needed nothing else. And as we unpack this prayer, I hope that we at Mission Fellowship will see that we need this same message every day. We need to preach it to ourselves individually and collectively every day. Otherwise, we will find ourselves tempted to look for something else, something more than the core gospel truth and the effects it produces in the local church. So let's unpack Paul's prayer of gratitude for the fruit of the gospel. 
Paul's prayer of gratitude for the fruit of the gospel. That's what we'll be looking at today. Let's read the whole section now, chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Paul says this, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now, because the Greek syntax or sentence structure is a bit confusing here, and Paul loves his run-on sentences, doesn't he? I am going to help us a bit by going through it a bit out of order so that we can understand its message more linearly. And so the first thing that we'll look at is the second half of verse 5 through verse 6. The second half of verse 5 through verse 6, where we see the power of the gospel is seen in its fruit. The power of the gospel is seen in its fruit. Now, this whole text starts off with a declaration that Paul and Timothy pray for the saints at Colossae. Man, we could just apply that and leave encouraged and enriched, couldn't we? There's prayer going on in the midst of the church. Prayer is powerful, friends. It is the lifeblood of sanctification in the church. We need to be praying for one another. And when Paul and Timothy model this prayer, when they pray, they offer a prayer to God of gratitude. And they do so because they've heard that the specific fruit of the gospel is evident and present in the relationships of the local church located at Colossae. But before we get to that, let's not gloss over the fact that the fruit is not self-producing. It comes as a result of something, a result of the gospel that has been preached. Reread the second half of verse 5 and then verse 6. Okay, It says there, uh, "...of this you have heard before, this word of the truth, the gospel." which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Notice that it says that the church has first heard before the word of truth, the gospel. Then a little bit later, it puts a bookend on it and says, he reiterates, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. So let's get really simple here this morning. The core gospel is truth. It is a message communicated about the state of reality. And that message of reality had come to Colossae. It was a message about the existence of reality that they had not comprehended or understood before. So let's just pause and inquire as to this message of God's grace. What is it? What is this word of truth, this message of God's grace? Well, all of mankind, including the people around the city of Colossae, believe innately in our own goodness and our own supremacy and our own ability. And so we've formed the idea of religion to be about how we can achieve righteousness. That's what religion is, how we can achieve righteousness, how we can make this world better, how we can be savior and Lord. 
And this is what spirituality and religion are all about. The divine subservient to us. And Paul was hearing that this thinking, by way of Jewish legalism or pagan folk religion or Gnostic theology, was infiltrating the church at Colossae and replacing the core gospel of God's grace. You see, religion is about manipulating God to be subservient to us. The truth, though, that the Colossian church had heard from Epaphras, who had heard it from Paul, was the exact opposite. The true gospel places us rightly in subservience to God. Amen? All of mankind is condemned to eternal death because of our rebellion against God who created us. We are all born in original sin. It is the very state of our being. And original sin is us trying to make God subservient to us. And it results in distance and separation and ignorance with regard to God. We are spiritually dead, which means we cannot save ourselves or redeem ourselves or reconcile ourselves to God by our own power. This is the state of all mankind prior to the gospel. But God, and not because of us, but because of his faithfulness, goodness, and righteousness, graciously decided to send his son, God incarnate, to earth. And this baby, born of a virgin, would grow up as Jesus of Nazareth and become the sin offering, the sacrifice whose death would atone for all the sin of mankind. And because of this atonement, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, taken by God, then into the throne room of the Father's authority, and given a position of supremacy over all the spiritual realm and all creation. This is the state of reality, the message of the truth. And from that position of supremacy over all the spiritual realm, which we will get into in great depth in Colossians, Jesus, by his grace alone, through his spirit that is holy, has captured the hearts of men and women through every age and location on the earth. And he converted our hearts to be made alive again. He gave us new life, something that we cannot earn and something only God, the author of life, can do. We can't just decide to do it. He has to give it to us. And that is why it is by his grace alone. And this new life that he has given us gives us the ability to know God, to truly understand his words, to be drawn to him and act in obedience to his will, law, and commands. But this conversion, while immediate in one sense, is still battling against our old nature every moment of every day. And so our lives are a process of crucifying our old sinful nature and strengthening our new living righteous nature as it is desperate for God's empowerment to exist in obedience to his rule. In short, a king has been crowned as supreme above all creation. He has been given authority to judge you to the eternal condemnation that you and I deserve because we were born rebels to his will. But by his grace, he has called you to be his own and given you his spirit, which he has made you alive and reconciled you to himself. So rather than being judged to condemnation when death comes or Christ returns, whichever comes first, you will be welcomed instead into his kingdom to live with him and his family for all eternity. This truth had come to Colossae, and like it did for those in this room who are in Christ, it changed their lives forever. In the moment of conversion, they 
And you and I were made alive with Christ. We were given new life. Our earthly bodies didn't change, but something miraculous occurred, and we went from spiritual death and ignorance to life and knowledge. And it was and is this occurrence that is seen anywhere the gospel truth is preached. And this is what Paul meant when he said the gospel had come to Colossae, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. No longer was the good news of the true creator God and his plan of redemption limited to one family, one tribe, one nation through one prophet. It was now made available to the entire creation, spiritual and physical. The gospel became, through Jesus, in a word, universal in its effect. Not universal in the idea of universalism, where every person can make up their own truth and own God and be seen as justified and make their own path up the mountain. That is universalism, and it is false. But the gospel had become universal in that Christ had been made supreme over the whole of creation. And now the gospel was being preached to the whole of peoples in the whole of creation. This good news is not limited to a given culture or a given town. It is not constrained by a shared experience or folk background or politics. It is good news that can cross any cultural or language barrier. It is truly universal in its application. It is, in the Greek, Catholicus, where we have derived the word Catholic. In Greek, Catholicus means whole or universal. And this is a gospel, the gospel that Paul is preaching, that is holistic and where and to whom it is preached. And so this was the beginning, as I noted in the introduction last week, of the apostolic view of the church, adjusting away from these small pockets of nomadic disciples to a more organized and cross-cultural view of the church, a view that resulted in local churches being set up in every town and city across the world. And from these local churches, the gospel was to be preached to the whole world and resulted in fruit at its preaching. Friends, when this truth is preached, that Christ has paid the price for our sin, reconciled us to the Father, been enthroned over his kingdom, and called us to be its citizens, when this truth is preached, it cannot help but produce conversion that leads to repentance and growing obedience and sanctification in those whom Christ has called to himself. And so the simple mission of the church is to preach the gospel in the local churches across the world and let his people who are called be drawn to that gospel. That's the mission. It's been that way since day one and it will be that way until Christ returns. We don't need new programs. We don't need fancy social media. That is the mission. And it's a mission that was created and given by God himself. Now, what is this fruit that is being produced? Well, first, it is evidence that the gospel is powerful and that it's true. Because without this gospel, there would not be the same result. Religion doesn't produce the results that Paul saw and heard of at Colossae. But also, Paul is linking some language that recalls a biblical theme that is very weighty. He's telling the Colossians that only this gospel truth is capable of helping them become the fullness of who God created them to be as those made in his image. Only the gospel can make them fruitful. And friends, only the gospel can make you fruitful as God intended you to be. Think with me for a moment from a very high-level view of the theme of fruitfulness throughout the Bible. 
fruitfulness. In Genesis, God commanded mankind to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Marriage and the family was given to provide fruitful, godly offspring. It's no wonder Satan wants to destroy marriage and destroy the family. It was to be the container for that fruitful offspring. Malachi, the prophet, speaks to Israel later on and reminds them of this fruitfulness that is meant to come in the midst of marriages among them when he says this in Malachi 2.15. He says, Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. And so we know that the job of the Spirit is to draw together in covenant union for what purpose? For the purpose of producing godly offspring. Sounds like what a church does. We're drawn together in covenant unity with Christ and one another so we can disciple one another to make one another what? Fruitful offspring of Christ. Christ being the first fruits. Okay? But that was only a picture, this idea of marriage and the family. As Paul talks about in Ephesians 5, it is actually only a picture of the eventual truth that pointed forward to the fullness of the family that the Holy Spirit would dwell among and draw together to produce godly offspring, disciples of Christ. You see, in the garden, God was the producer of fruitfulness as evidenced by his creation. It was full of fruitful trees. But mankind wanted the one fruit that was perverse and twisted. And from that moment on, God was at work to redeem the fruitfulness of creation. So he did so through a man named Abram, Abraham, who was called to be fruitful in his offspring. And from him would come a very large family. And Isaiah speaks of Israel, this family, as a vineyard, but one that produces, unfortunately, poisonous fruit, not useful fruit. And they were looking forward in the prophets to the true offspring of Abraham who would be characterized by faith and brought together by the blood of Christ so that they would love one another and love God. And so in the New Testament, this imagery is fulfilled in Jesus. All of the Old Testament imagery, even the institution of the family and marriage, it looked forward pointing to Christ. And Jesus, who was not married, you'll notice, nor sexually active, perfectly fulfilled the command given to Adam to be fruitful and multiply by producing a family and heirs of fruitful offspring. He condemned the old order of Pharisaic religion for being fruitless, using the metaphor of a fig tree. But then he points out that those who do the will of the Father are fruitful offspring and brethren among God's people. Who are my mother, my brother, and my sisters? Those who do the will of the Father. They are fruitful and then his disciple, Paul, comes along and uses this same idea that we are God's offspring by his gracious adoption, Jesus being the first fruit of this family. And by his spirit, that same fruit is evident in those that are truly converted by the spirit. We are drawn together by the spirit, a portion of the spirit in our midst, so that we can do what? Provide godly offspring. This does not negate the family nor marriage. That is still an institution of God that we rejoice in and we celebrate, but it is pointing to a greater picture the family of God. Friends, isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful how God has given us so many pictures, so many image of what, images of what his point is. And when the kingdom comes in fullness, the book of Revelation pictures the kingdom of God as, guess what? A fruitful garden filled with God's people, a fruitful, fruitful people who exist in faith, love, and a fulfilled hope. And so in our text today, Paul is using, when he says these words, bearing fruit and increasing, he's using, if you will, a literary hyperlink 
to use this biblical theme to underline the fact that the church at Colossae had received the truth of God's will and his redemption and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and the fruitfulness of producing godly offspring was evident from the day they heard and understood it. They were stepping into the fruitfulness that God intends for his true humanity and they needed to realize that it was all they needed. They didn't need more. They didn't need something new. They needed to stay in faithfulness to that gospel. And that evidence was especially present in three things. In their faith, in their love, and in their hope. And so we next see the fruit of the gospel is this, faith, love, and hope. And this is actually in the section before. Remember, the syntax is a bit broken up, so I'm trying to go a little bit more linearly here. In verses 3 through 5, the first part of 5, we see this. It says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith, love, and hope. When my children were little, we had a book that was about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit book. Anybody else know what I'm talking about? It's got the little plastic fruit in it. It's a really cool little book. Loved reading it with them. The kids loved it so much that the first copy got worn out, and we had to get a second copy. I loved listening to my wife, Kelly, ask the children, what's the fruit of the Spirit? And having them repeat it back to her and watching it immediately adjust their attitude in a given situation. The book pulled from the famous section in Galatians where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And would you turn there with me really quick? Go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. Paul says to the church of Galatia, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for those are these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Now, isn't it interesting that often when we talk about the fruit of the Spirit, we mention it as if it is an innate quality to each of us and evident in us individually. As if to say a person who is stranded on a desert island is just simply a joyful, loving, peaceful, patient, kind, gentle, self-controlled person. Now, I think to a certain extent that is true in someone truly con con uh, converted. We have these innately within us. To an extent, when the Holy Spirit captures you and draws your heart, draws you to Christ, you are discipled in the Word of God and His people, and I think some of these character traits start to become innate. But I question if that is the emphasis here, if that's the main point. 
Because if we take the biblical context of fruitfulness being the building of a family of godly offspring who worship Yahweh together, and we look at the immediate literary context around this section in Galatians, we realize that most, if not all, of this fruit is only evident in terms of how we operate in relationships with one another. It's relational fruit. We might say, I have fruit. Look at the fruit in my life. But like plants, we need cross-pollination. And the fruit is actually only evident in our interaction with others. Would you reread the list again with me with this in mind? And notice that the fruit of the flesh is self-centered and the fruit of the spirit is others-centered. Fruit of the flesh, verse 19. And notice it says works, not fruit, excuse me, because there is no fruit. It doesn't grow. It takes you over like a cancer. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. You might say, well, Hans, those are individual. No, guys, sexual immorality is using another person as an object for your selfish desires. It's relational. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. But then look at the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And you might say, Hans, wait a minute. Self-control, that's self. Wives, when your husband says something stupid, how much self-control does it take to not answer him back? Husbands. Husbands, when your wife nags you and you want to respond to defensiveness, how much self-control does it take to not answer back? Good relationships require self-control. This just isn't about New Year's and eating or your weight program or your exercise program. Friends, this is in the context of relationships. How do we know this? Look at the literary context. Chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Wow, we just talked about gentleness, didn't we? Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Friends, this fruit is relational. To think that we can go and be a desert island unto ourselves and still bear the fruit of the Spirit is to miss the point of what God is doing in the midst of Christians in the midst of the church. If Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, the first among many brethren, and the one supreme over this family and kingdom, then the Spirit has drawn us together with him and with one another, and in our midst is creating godly offspring. And who are those godly offspring? Well, if you go back and look at Colossians and the, the intro we looked at last week, who is it? Well, it's faithful brothers and sisters under the Father God that are set apart as saints. That's what saint means, to be set apart. For what reason? To worship God by our faith in him and to love one another, all in hope of the fullness of the kingdom to come. So Paul also uses a shorthand idea in Colossians here to speak of the fruit that is evident and increasing in the church at Colossae because of the gospel. He doesn't do the full list he does in Galatians, but here in, back in Colossians, you can turn back there with me if you're not there, this is where we go back and reread 3 through 5. What is he saying there? He's saying there's fruit present. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. 
because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hearing of the gospel is the medium through which God converts the heart. His gracious and sovereign justification occurs regardless of our merit or our action. In fact, in spite of who we are, it occurs when the gospel is heard. And at that moment, we realize we are called into the family of God, the Father. We cannot stop it. We know that we are pulled into that family. We have been chosen and brought in. We have been purchased by the blood of Christ, and we have been made new in him. We have no choice but to embrace this new family that we have. And the first result of this conversion is that our hearts that worshipped ourselves and were allegiant only to ourselves are now understanding of Christ's position of supreme lordship over us. And we are made allegiant to him above all else. Praise God. He becomes our savior, our Lord, our King, and our friend. And this is what Paul means by faith in Christ Jesus. Christ, meaning anointed king. Faith in that anointed king is partially a mental choice of Jesus as the deity you believe in, yes. But it's also far more than a mental choice. Far more than a mental choice. It is a casting away of all other things you worship or hold as an authority in your life, including yourself, so that Christ alone is your God and King. And friends, this doesn't just happen at the moment of justification. It begins then. But the work of sanctification is constantly shedding those things and getting rid of those things that are authorities and that we worship. Friends, I want to ask you today, is your faith just a mental ascent? You decided one day in a prayer that Jesus was going to be your deity? Or is your faith more than just a mental ascent? Is he your Lord and your King? Is he the first among many brethren to you? You see, the second result of this conversion is that not only do we then love God and have faith in Christ and allegiance towards Christ, but we have a resulting love for all the saints. When Christ was asked what the greatest command was, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he said that the second was just like it. In other words, if the second is not present, then neither is the first. Yikes. And the second is to love your neighbor. Now, friends, this is not just a small town, give a cup of sugar if asked kind of neighbor. This is the person next to you that is engaged in the same love of God as you kind of neighbor. It's a love for the saints. Like the Spirit being present in the covenant of marriage, as we noted in Malachi, if the Spirit has drawn you into the covenant family of the Father God, the whole goal is godly offspring. Godly fruit that shows relationships characterized by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And this is love that we have for all the saints, those outside of our local body, as in other gospel-centered churches, just like we prayed for today churches in the Northwest Church Network, and churches across the world like uh, Marcel's Church in Burkina Faso. But more specifically, it is a love evidenced in those we interact with on a weekly and sometimes daily basis. It's a love for the body that we're part of in the ups and downs of life together here in the local church. If we find ourselves constantly dissatisfied, constantly grumbling against those around us in the body, we have to realize our hearts reflect the kingdom of darkness and its leader, the accuser of the brethren, because that's what we're doing. 
But a heart converted by Christ instead, rather than grumbling, shows gratitude, like Paul, for the brothers and sisters around them, and gratitude for the process of sanctification and fruitfulness that is occurring in those ups and downs of relationship. You see, Christ never promised us perfect relationships. He promised us perfect sanctification in relationships. Brothers and sisters, which one is more characteristic of how you see the saints in the church? Even how you see your brothers and sisters across this room today. I wonder what would happen if our lives were characterized by the same gratitude Paul has for the gifts of one another. Think about how radically this church would impact this community with the gospel if every morning we woke up and we went through and we thank God for Paul and for Ryan and for Viv and for Sam and for Michael and for Rachel, for Heidi, for John, for Kelton, for Nick. Imagine how drawn our hearts would be to one another. Well, we see that the gospel initiates faith and the result is a love that is evident and increasing over time. And the fuel that fires this growth and the enduring faithfulness, well, he notes it as the hope of eternity. Paul says here, the hope laid up for us in heaven. And what is this hope? Well, in the context of the gospel, as noted here, it is the fact that Christ has risen from the dead. He has worked redemption and forgiveness of our sins by his sacrificial death in our place. And now he is seated as the supreme authority over all creation. He's initiated his kingdom now in the hearts of his people by his spirit. And he will return to judge and to restore creation, condemn wickedness in the wicked, and bring creation back to the shalom, the peace, the wholeness for which it was intended. This is the gospel. And knowing this is the case, this should be the fuel for us to increase in sanctification and give our lives over to the governance and authority of God's word and his Holy Spirit, so that we can reflect his rule in our lives. This is what defines what kind of life we should live, eternity. To not think eternally about our current relationships, it is very short-sighted. It's like this, okay? This is uh, one of those pastoral confessions that's fit for public consumption, okay? It's like this. Have you ever had a bit of road rage on the road? Anybody other than me? Or am I the only sinner in here? Okay. And maybe it's nothing extreme, but you and another driver, you get kind of visibly frustrated at each other, right? You go. No, you go, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And then we drive past them with the fish sticker on our back, right? But you're mostly the aggressor. We feel a freedom to do so because we're in our cars. And so we've convinced ourselves that we have the liberty to act however we want in that situation because we're going to part ways. So there's no point, right? Until... You make a couple of turns and realize, oh, man, we're going to the same store parking lot. Has that ever happened to anybody? Yeah. Right? Or it's kind of like when you drive by another elder's wife on the street right in front of your house and almost run her off the road. This happened to me the other day. <laughs> Sarah Robinson, I'm sorry, right? And we kind of like almost ran each other off the road. I'm in a hurry, and, and I apologized to her on a Sunday, and she was like, oh, I thought I did the same thing, right? But you're going to the same place, and so it gets a little bit awkward, Right? And so what do you do when you pull into that parking lot? Well, you drive around the parking lot a few more times until they go in the store hoping that they didn't actually see your face so that when you run into each other in the checkout line, you could just say, hi, how are you? Right? We act in the short term 
not realizing the consequences in the long term. What a great metaphor for how we act as self-proclaimed Christians. We say we're the Lord's, but then we act as our own king, showing fruit of the flesh, not the spirit. We forget that heaven is at the foot of God's throne. And it's where those who are converted will eventually stand, and we will stand together. And this knowledge should affect us now. The hope of heaven, the hope of an eternity of shalom, the knowledge that we will stand in worship of Jesus Christ in fullness one day. Well, it should fuel the spirit within us to choose today love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. As much as it depends on each of us, we need to be at peace with all people, especially and beginning with the household of faith. Faith, love, and hope. This is Paul's shorthand for what should be in the midst of the church as evidence of the gospel's power. He used the same phrase to exhort the church at Corinth to stop trying to outdo one another in arrogant spiritual gift displays and hyper-spirituality. It's so funny to me that people look at 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 for what to do, when in fact he's actually exhorting them, don't do that. And chapter 13, the center of it, is actually what he says we should do. He was trying to tell them that their spiritual displays and charismatic view of the Spirit are not what show you as the Lord's. Love is. And he says what we heard in our second reading today. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. And as for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. The hope laid up for us in heaven is what takes our God-granted faith and fuels it outwardly, resulting in love towards one another. A love that reflects the steadfast love of God, the hesed of the Old Testament God. The love that was spoken of in Psalm 100 this morning. Paul wanted the local church at Colossae and wants the local church on McGillcrest and 25th to well understand that this fruit is evidence that the gospel is at work in the local church. This fruit is evidence that the gospel is at work in the local church. Let's take a look at verses 7 through 8, our last section. He finishes with the grace of God and truth. He says, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf 
and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Look at the process here. Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul, who had come face to face with the risen Christ. He then obeyed its mandate and spread it by taking it to the people of his circle of influence, Epaphras did, in his own hometown of Colossae. He told others, and they were converted from the heart, being called by God, and slowly this formed into a collection of people, an assembly that was the local church at Colossae, a gathering or assembly of those under the lordship of Christ in a given geography. That's what the local church is, and every person who has been called by Christ is commanded and required to be part of one, not a spiritual consumer that hops from local church to local church. That is not what we are called to be. At the time of this letter, the members of this assembly are now showing a love in the Spirit. And they are following, in Epaphras' model, an example of being a fellow slave of Christ and a faithful minister of Christ. So that when they go out and tell others the news that Christ is king, there is evidence that backs their claims. In fact, when we tell people about Christ, it should be followed up with, and come see the result of his gospel. Let me introduce you to my church family. So you can see faith, love, and hope. And just to be clear, dear brothers and sisters, this is not a romantic nor a sentimental love, but one that is surrendered to the gospel. The truth that each of us are sinners desperately in need of the forgiveness and grace of God and of one another. The truth that we will have conflict and pain and misunderstandings, but that God himself by his spirit will guide us through those moments. And the truth that in these situations, we might become more sanctified and more mature, casting our eyes upon Christ. Because he has given us a selfless example and a call to his children, rather than ourselves and our own sovereign emotions, to be submitted to him, not those sovereign emotions. It is a love that reflects his steadfast, enduring faithfulness. And it's only in reflecting this same steadfast, enduring faithfulness that we give truth to the fact that the gospel is powerful. When we as a church started down this road of emphasizing the church, ecclesiology, and community as a result of the gospel at work, I think a lot of us, myself included, started to build a glass house of what a perfect community looks like. And I want to apologize to those of you who've been here through that process because I think to a certain extent I set some of us up for failure. But this was a romantic ideal of this world based on emotion and perception and our own experience. The longer, though, we sat in this truth of what the local church is, the more that I am finally starting to discern what true community, true love in the Spirit looks like. And that is faithfulness to God and his commands that bleeds into every relationship and rules over our emotions that want to set themselves up as king. No one captures what I'm talking about better than Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, as he discusses something called the wish dream. The wish dream is not love in the spirit, submitted in faith to Christ and meant for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel. The wish dream is a love only submitted to self, in which the object of the relationships in the church are meant to meet my emotional demands. He says this, which fits perfectly with Paul's prayer. Quote, Because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, he's referring to the gospel, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, 
Long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We thank God for what he has done for us. We thank God for giving us brethren who live by his call, by his forgiveness, and by his promise. We do not complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us daily. And is not what has been given us enough? Brothers and sisters who will go on living with us through sin and need under the blessing of his grace. Is the divine gift of Christian fellowship anything less than this any day, even the most difficult and distressing day? Even when sin and misunderstanding burden the communal life, is not the sinning brother still a brother with whom I too stand under the word of Christ? Will not his sin be a constant occasion for me to give thanks that both of us may live in the forgiving love of God in Jesus Christ. Thus, the very hour of our disillusionment with brothers and sisters becomes incomparably salutary because it so thoroughly teaches me that neither of us can ever live by our own words and deeds, but only by that one word and deed which really binds us together, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. When the morning mists of dreams vanish, then dawns the bright day of Christian fellowship. End quote. Colossae was forgetting that this core gospel truth was the center of their faith, and that proclamation of this truth by word and deed was their core mission. They had mission creep, if you will toward folk religion and Jewish religious practices and Gnostic heresy and, quite honestly, division, as we'll see later in the letter. And none of these resulted in the kind of love and relational faithfulness that was present in Christianity and churches that subscribed to its tenets given by the gospel. Only the gospel of Christ's love creates a faithful love between brothers and sisters. But it's a love that has to be constantly cultivated, constantly watered, just like real fruit. It has to be constantly cultivated by application of the gospel. And friends, this is true not just for our relationships as brothers and sisters, but our relationships as husbands and wives, roommates, friends, parents, and children. And friends, this is still, not just for Colossae, this is still a barrier to walking in faith, love, and hope. We too enter Christianity and hit a point where something starts to tempt us to believe that the gospel is not enough. We begin to look for the next spiritual novelty or the next relational high. We start to believe that there is something else that is the purpose of the local church. Some begin to think the purpose of the church is to teach me to be moral or good, or maybe to build the perfect family and get my children under control. Maybe it's to teach me how to be prosperous and live in God's material blessing. Maybe it's to purpose, to bring me uh, the community that I have always wanted and make me feel on the inside rather than on the outside. Maybe the church's point is to replace my family and give me a family in which there are finally no trials and no conflicts. Good luck with that. Perhaps the church is the launching place from which I can help fix social ills or get certain political ideology out. Or perhaps the church is simply a provider of spiritual products such as worship experiences or Bible studies or apologetic philosophies. Or worse yet, 
Many people might believe that the church is meant to make me feel like I am enough in and of myself, which, by the way, is contrary to the gospel. All of these brothers and sisters have never been and will never be the point of the local church because none of them are founded in the gospel. Is it any wonder then, with these misconstrued expectations, that so many walk away from the local church disenchanted, muttering to themselves, the church doesn't work. In so doing, they become heralds for the accuser of the brethren. Friends, do you find yourself more often being made in the image of the accuser or more often made in the image of Christ and, like Paul, thanking God for the brethren with whom Christ is bringing the gospel to bear and even thanking God for the very brother or sister in which you find yourself in conflict? Because in the midst of that, Christ is trying to bring the gospel to bear. And so our response should be gratitude and thankfulness for that brother or sister. And so I praise God for his word today in Colossians and for the example of the church at Colossae. I join Paul in his prayer of thanksgiving because their example helps us to cast off expectations that should never have been placed on the local body of believers in the first place. Instead, we can take up the mantle of what it is, uh, what's expected of the local church, that by the pure gospel of Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and coming return, we can stand firm in allegiance and faith to Jesus as our King. And we can then walk in love for the saints around us in a love given only by the Spirit. And we can see all that we do through the lens of our eternal hope in heaven so that as trials and tribulations come, because I promise you, as Jesus did, they will come, especially in the midst of our relationships, we can return always to that simple truth of the gospel that we have all heard. And we can let it wash over us as Christ's loving, gracious command for how we are to live and respond to one another. Brothers and sisters, I know that at one point, each and every one of us in this church has been or will be harmed by one another and the church as a whole. But it is God's graciousness that guides us through those moments so that we might see the gospel, know the gospel, and evidence the gospel. And it is working through those struggles in which the faithful, steadfast love of God shows through his people. It is those moments and situations that build us up and mature us in Christ. And so I can stand before you this morning and state in truth to you, Mission Fellowship, that we as your elders always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we have seen your faith in Christ Jesus, and seen the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before, in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Mission Fellowship, I praise God for your love in the Spirit, and I will continue to ask God that he might have his way with us as he makes known to us what, is, what it is to truly love in the Spirit. And so this morning, let's now take this word that has impacted our hearts and praise God as we remember the core truth of the gospel, as we participate in the meal that speaks to our common unity, our communion in Christ and in the gospel, and as we praise God for what he has done amongst us. Let's pray.
Father God, we confess that we often gloss over pieces of your scripture so quickly, and it is a temptation to do so with this early part of the letter. It's a temptation to move past it as just a basic greeting, niceties of Paul. But when we dig into it and we understand what he is saying and the background that sits in his heart and mind, that the gospel is powerful and that it alone produces fruit, fruit that is evidenced in the midst of the local church and in the midst of our relationships. When we see this, and we even see it evidenced in the process by which you brought the gospel to Colossae, and we apply that to our own lives, Lord, we are in awe at what you have done. We so take for granted your gospel. We so take for granted your word. Many of us have multiple Bibles on our phone and in our house. And Lord, we so take for granted your church that this place exists, that these people exist. Forgive us, Lord, for taking advantage of these, for not giving them credence. And Lord, forgive us for not fully being thankful for the brothers and sisters around us. Paul reminds us that each and every one of the people around us that have stepped into covenant faithfulness in this body, they are a gift from you because you alone, by your grace, brought them into your family and made them available as our brother and sister. Lord, help us to take stock of that today, that when we look around this room and we sing with voices of common praise, that it is all by your grace. Lord, you have collected this group of saints. You have made it possible to be here. And you alone give us the empowerment to praise you know you, love you, and as a result, love one another. So we thank you today, God, for the faith that you have given us, for the love that results from the example of your love and the hope that we have together of shalom coming in fullness and us dwelling amongst you with you as our rightful king. Lord, help these truths to impact us today. Help us to be a people that truly evidence this and help us each to be convicted of our part in this or our part in holding it back and help it to be brought to bear on our lives as we go to the table of communion, as we confess sin to you in prayer, as we praise you for your goodness and grace. We love you, Jesus, and we love you simply because you loved us first and gave us the ability to love you. And so all praise and honor and glory are yours. In Jesus' name, amen.